CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. Hello there, I'm George Frankly, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions, and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This time on Dare to be Stupid, what do you call an unthinkable disaster that's eminently thinkable? Is an investment scam still a scam if it's obvious that it's a scam? It's the normalization of deviance, or the check engine light on the space shuttle. There are a few things more addictive in media than a good twist. The big turnabout, the I didn't see that one coming, the how could they moments, when everything you expected takes a hard turn in a surprising new direction. Darth Vader is Luke's father, Thanos turned half the heroes into cat litter, and Bruce Willis was actually bald the whole time. Yet there's an unspoken rule to good twists. Just pass all the how could they's and didn't see that coming's is sort of an obligatory postscript, the oh, it all makes sense now's. The greatest twists aren't non-sequiturs or random happenstance. Unpredictable as the reveal may be, the legendary twists usually leave a trail, seeds of the idea that were planted all the way down the path. After thought and review, a good twist won't seem like much of a twist after all. An unearned twist becomes disappointing, frustrating, and eventually, likely, forgotten. Life, as many have threatened, imitates art. And likewise, life actually has far fewer twists and random surprises than we would like to believe. Many of the most shocking tragedies, disasters, and ersatz twists of fate in the modern age were actually the predictable consequences of known bad decisions. Countless tragedies come not from shocking surprises or unforeseen twists, but from known hazards with already established practices to prevent them. These problems are set in motion long in advance as those established practices slowly become ignored by operators that no longer remember why they bothered. The normalization of deviance is a form of social and organizational rot that makes deadly decisions surprisingly easy to make. Normalization of deviance is a phrase coined in 1986 during, well, during an event we'll talk about momentarily. It's a heady term for a simple concept. Normalization of deviance is when your car's check engine light has been on for so long that you no longer notice it exists. It's when your bedroom window has been cracked for so long that you no longer mumble, I need to call the glass people, every morning when you wake up. It's when a warning sign stays lit up so long that you can't even see it anymore. It's when deviating from standard operating procedure goes on so long that it becomes the new standard. When your car finally sputters and dies in the middle of the freeway, it's a stressful surprise to be sure, but within a few seconds you'll be kicking yourself for ignoring that engine light all year. When warm furnace air hits that cracked window on a cold winter night and it spiderwebs into a shattered mess, you'll be shocked in that moment 
but you'll know exactly where the problem began. When a problem reaches the scale of all-out tragedy, the origins may be less obvious, but the seeds of the problem are always found out. This is going to get a bit grim, but it's important to talk about the large costs of small decisions, because sadly there are no twists here, only consequences, both financial and fatal. The largest case studies of this sort of decision-making crisis, as you may guess, come from NASA's space shuttle program. The shuttles Challenger and Columbia, lost in 1986 and 2003 respectively, fell victim to totally different mechanical failures, but unfortunately, identical decisions. The shuttle Columbia broke up on re-entry on February 1st, 2003, killing all seven crew members. Unbeknownst to them, the shuttle's fate was already sealed the moment it lifted off two weeks earlier. Small fragments of insulation foam came off the booster rockets during liftoff and perforated the edges of the shuttle wing like a pellet gun. The resulting punctures, only a few centimeters in size, were all it took for heat and friction during re-entry to tear the ship apart. It was, in many ways, an exceptional event. Insulation foam was not supposed to break free like that. The fact that any of it did was out of spec for the design. But that design spec wasn't the problem. Insulation foam had been peeling off the booster tanks on nearly every shuttle flight, and it was a known occurrence, yet it was also a deviation from the specs. How was this happening? The answer was simple. When the phenomenon was first noticed years earlier, it was also noticed that nothing bad had come of it. So when it continued to happen, and still nothing bad seemed to happen, it was officially unofficially ignored. The specs were still on the books, but it was an accepted unwritten rule in shuttle missions that a little foam loss was fine. The issue was known, the standards were there, but the deviance from standards became normalized. The metaphorical check engine light was always on. The cruelest irony of all is the actual reason why the booster tanks were covered in foam to begin with. They were insulated to prevent ice forming on the outside. Because that ice could break off during liftoff and perforate the shuttle. Without the people involved understanding the reasoning of their standards and specs, the logic behind it was lost, as were seven lives. The tragedy was a death knell for the shuttle program, not only from massive losses to the already over-budget project, but because it showed that the organization had failed to learn from the shuttle Challenger in 1986. It is well-established pop knowledge these days that the Challenger, along with its crew, was lost to a faulty O-ring. A simple, small rubber ring caused the shuttle to explode shortly after liftoff. It makes for a great parable about the big cost of little things, my kingdom for a nail and all that. But pop culture doesn't convey the infuriating story of why that little rubber ring was set up to fail. Like the story I told, and countless that I haven't, this problem was known. In the case of the Challenger, multiple engineers at Morton Thiokol, the company that manufactured the boosters containing those O-rings, had argued against launching the shuttle to begin with. Various weather conditions had already caused repeated delays, and the day of the expected launch was now facing unseasonably cold temperatures, as low as 53 Fahrenheit or 11.5 C. Those engineers had a simple reason for their protest. The rubber O-rings hadn't been rated for use at temperatures that low. They warned management that the parts weren't proven safe under those conditions and their managers had a simple retort. They hadn't been proven unsafe at those conditions, now had they? Their incentives were clear. They didn't want any more expensive, embarrassing delays. They pushed ahead with the launch, and NASA management agreed. The rest is history. If it's not already clear, the manager's comeback was a logical fallacy. It made for a fun quip, but it had no meaning. One condition was known safe, and the other condition was a known unknown, and could not be presumed. There were no grounds to assume it would be alright, but they went ahead on the grounds that what they didn't know wouldn't hurt them. The resulting investigations were brutal for all involved. 
Morton Thiokol's records turned up years of concerns over the primary and backup O-rings, and multiple alarms raised by engineers that went buried by management. The most damning moment of all came during the hearings, when NASA representatives passed around some of the flexible O-rings and attested that there was no way to know they could fail. One investigative committee member, the physicist Richard Feynman, famously pulled one of the rings aside and dropped it into a glass of ice water on his desk. Only a minute later, he pulled the cold ring out of the water and flexed it again. It crumbled to pieces right in front of the cameras. These disasters were foreseeable and foreseen, yet they kept happening. In the case of both shuttles, investigators dragged NASA through the coals, not for technical failures, but for organizational failures. Failures that first coined sociologist Diane Vaughn's phrase, the normalization of deviance. The books, the rules, all the stated policies were already in place to prevent a catastrophe. But the culture that carried it out followed unwritten rules. Feynman was especially harsh in his judgments of the rot within NASA, going beyond the other committee members to recommend the complete rebuilding of NASA from the ground up. He did not have faith that the organization would learn from its mistakes, much less follow established protocols or practices. Richard Feynman saw a flashing check engine light at NASA that he refused to ignore. Everyone else was content to keep driving, and NASA emerged unscathed. Feynman died in 1988, and never had to see the chickens come home to roost in 2003, when all the warning lights caught up with NASA once again. There's a lone, common element at the heart of all of these decisions, one simple ingredient that drives seemingly sensible people to cover their eyes and ears and charge blindly forward. When we come back, we'll look at how investments in cryptocurrencies fall into the same trap that dismantled NASA. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go with Nexo. For starters, you get free crypto for each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Instead, borrow instant cash against your assets. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. When you boil away the insecurity, the laziness, or the embarrassment of these scandals, a simple distilled motive always remains. Money. The financial world is full of check engine lights that we tape over because the promises of potential are too valuable to face the truth. We can't go a single news cycle without hearing the story of another YouTube or streaming influencer banking six figures in pump and dump scams off of the Roblox crowd. We're all better than that, right? We're not going to get suckered like idiot kids into buying a stake in a crypto coin made overnight by a professional RuneScape player with the screen presence and credibility of a party clown. Right? June 2021. Esports group FaZe Clan runs Save the Kids, a pump and dump scam. July 2021. Twitch streamer Paul Ice Poseidon Danino runs CX Coin, a pump and dump scam. August 2021. Alleged human person Logan Paul runs Dink Doink, a pump and dump scam. Is it a red flag when one of the worst people you've ever heard of shills an altcoin that you've never heard of? Is it a red flag when it comes hot on the heels of multiple other altcoin scams only weeks apart? Is there at least a little caution light coming on when he calls it Dink Doink? There aren't many flags redder than these, yet there's always enough people with that right mix of desperation and FOMO that an idiot's promise of easy money will win them over. They don't care that they're diving into a technology they don't understand, spearheaded by an expert in absolutely nothing. A fool and his money, right? But the worst financial check engine light of all time exploded only a decade ago, and thousands of professionals weren't just made out to be fools, 
Their lives were utterly destroyed by something they seemingly should have seen coming. Even 13 years later, the Bernie Madoff scandal remains the largest financial fraud in history. Through his unprecedentedly massive Ponzi scheme, Madoff grifted somewhere between 50 and 65 billion with a B dollars from tens of thousands of people and companies. Somewhere in the dissemination of this event into popular culture, the insane scale of the scam and the warnings people missed got very, very lost. First, understand how a Ponzi scheme works. Named after the pioneering conman Charles Ponzi himself, the scam requires you to bring in investors with promises of fast, steady returns on their investments, and then just pocket their money. As long as you keep new victims coming in, you just take a slice of the newest investors' funds to pay the regular dividends on the previous ones. It can keep going a very long time so long as new money keeps coming in, and so long as not too many people try to fully cash out. Eventually, once either of those things fails, the conman has to cut loose and disappear before the whole thing falls apart. A century ago, Charles Ponzi ran his scheme for a little over a year and raked in the modern equivalent of over $250 million. So, for context, Bernie Madoff scored over $50 billion across over 20 years. 20 plus years of pretending to invest people's money in mysterious assets and still paying them regular monthly returns. If you've ever heard the name Bernie Madoff, by now you've heard the story of how, in 2008, an honest whistleblower finally took him down for good. Except, that's not what happened at all. Bernard Madoff, orchestrator of the greatest Ponzi scheme in human history, was never actually caught. He was able to run out his entire scam until the 2008 recession finally brought it down around him. And then he just turned himself in. The whistleblower did exist, though. That was Harry Markopoulos, a quantitative analyst who had been sounding the alarm about Madoff's fake hedge fund for nine straight years, without any results. He accumulated hundreds of pages of documents showing that Madoff's returns were statistically impossible, that his trades and investments never actually happened, and testimonies from dozens of financial professionals that would vouch for the same. He described his report as, quote, 29 red flags that demanded investigation, and three easy questions for Madoff that he can't answer. And he continued to update it throughout his personal crusade to bring the man down. From 1999 to 2008, Marco Polis shopped his information to a dozen newspapers and multiple enforcement agencies, specifically submitting it to the Securities and Exchange Commission almost every single year for a decade. Nothing ever happened. Nobody ever caught on to Bernie Madoff. It might not surprise you that the title of Harry Markopoulos' memoir is NO ONE WOULD LISTEN, in all caps. The truly infuriating thing about the Madoff scam was that, although it took a skilled analyst to prove that it was a scam, the majority of his red flags were so obvious that any sane individual could have guessed that it was a scam. It took active effort and deliberate choices on the parts of thousands of people to ignore the warning signs year over year over year. Well into the digital age, Madoff's incredibly informal organization would never submit electronic trade receipts, only typed invoices that were faxed to investors and always taken at face value. For decades, Madoff's fund maintained a steady 1-3% return per month, every single month. Absolutely regardless of wider market conditions, swings, or drops, it was smooth growth every single month for 20 years. In the eight years alone that Marco Polis tracked, Madoff had only three random months that didn't have net positive returns. On paper, the fund grew in what he described as a, quote, straight, clean, 45-degree angle at every point. Literally impossible, Marco Polis would insist, unless he were wrong and Madoff was simply a precognitive space alien with perfect foreknowledge of the market. That impossibility is no overstatement. Even when the entire economy took hits, Madoff's fund reported another 1-3% positive returns. 
When the housing bubble collapsed and every investment portfolio on planet Earth plummeted, Madoff was still reporting the same steady returns. Those dubious trading statements of his often reported more moves than could have physically taken place that day, and he was always, always courting more new investors. Almost everywhere he went, Marco Polis not only found out nobody would listen, but he found that major investors were already in with Madoff. Bernie Madoff had a sterling reputation. He couldn't be a fraud. He was a close personal friend to these hundreds of people. It can't be a scam. He reliably sends out checks every month. He'll cash you out if you ask. He's such a nice guy. That's where Harry Markopoulos hit a very frustrating wall in communication. Even when he laid all these things out, it didn't matter. Even when he stripped away the complex statistics, it didn't matter. When he challenged them to do the basic due diligence in checking and confirming their receipts, they didn't want to. One of his closest friends, a money manager at Access International Advisors, handling over a billion dollars worth of assets, disregarded his warnings and assured him that he had already run a professional graphology evaluation on Madoff. Graphology, the meta-scientific analysis of personality via handwriting samples. Essentially, one step up from a tarot card reading. I was amazed at the excuses that smart people would make for Bernie, Markopoulos would later write. Professionals with massive fortunes at stake were actually subjecting Bernie Madoff to less scrutiny than their other investments. They had rules, they had procedures, they had all kinds of vetting processes that they would carry out on everyone except Bernie Madoff. It had become a normalized, accepted deviation from their specs. They were willfully ignoring the red flags. They were all noticing the check engine light and then driving to work anyways. Not everyone ignored the warning light. In time, Markopoulos found a few managers at more general consumer investment firms that knew of Madoff's fund and refused to invest. One investment manager at Merrill Lynch was happy to tell him that Madoff was simply too good to be true, and probably a fraud. That was the split. When people saw that check engine light, they went one of two ways. People like Markopoulos thought, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. But others saw the signs and thought, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Better to bury their heads in the sand and not break the illusion with uncomfortable doubts. You don't want to take your car into the shop. You don't want to diagnose that goddamn nebulous warning light, because until you finally do, it might be nothing. Until you do, it could just be a dirty air sensor, $10 fix. Like Schrodinger's cat, everything remains cuddly, alive, and well until you finally open the box and look. The steady returns and zero risks that Bernie Madoff offered them was a fire-and-forget missile. Everything just worked smoothly, with no stress or uncertainty, as long as they believed in it. That's a kind of comfort and security that some people would kill for. They needed that reliable, endless money to be real, so they just avoided confronting it. And the firms that thought he was a fraud just avoided him. Everybody had a system for dealing with Bernie Madoff, and none of them involved actually do anything about him. There's a social allegory known as the missing stare. A wide variety of people who live in the same building all know that, in their main staircase, one step is broken. They step over it every day. That broken stair step is missing, but it never slows any of them down because they all know to step past it. So, they don't do anything about it. They just warn new visitors to step over it. So, the missing stair remains missing, and eventually someone who doesn't know is going to fall. In the financial world, Madoff was that missing stair. A known problem. A structural hazard everyone could see, but all just stepped over. Some ignored him entirely, and some saw the missing stair and invested anyways. Eventually, Schrodinger had to open the box. The Great Recession may not have brought down Madoff's amazing claimed returns, but it had scared many of his investors into pulling their funds out of the market. 
one or two cash-outs was always something he could handle. But over a billion dollars in simultaneous requests and more on the way? He didn't have that kind of money. He stalled for over a year, delaying payments and scrambling to find more and more investors, but by the end of 2008, it collapsed. Madoff confessed to his sons, and they turned him in. Markopoulos was vindicated, and his scathing testimony over the SEC's total failure drove Congress to purge the commission's management and completely reorganize. But, as he lamented, he never actually succeeded. They caught Bernie $50 billion too late, he would write. For every single professional that should have known better, there were tens of thousands of clients putting trust in them. Thousands of family life savings were gone, hundreds of pension plans wiped out, dozens of charity organizations gutted because a man offered them everything they wanted on a silver platter. And all they had to do was put their fingers in their ears and keep humming while they handed over somebody else's money. Perhaps the worst irony of Bernie's escape from scrutiny is the fact that, under any other circumstances, people seem to think they see Ponzi schemes everywhere they go. The earliest years of Bitcoin were constantly under fire from amateurs and professionals alike for being a pyramid and or Ponzi scheme. The accusation is renewed every single year by people from all walks of life without ever bringing any substance to it. Everybody with the platform believes they are a Ponzi whisperer and they can see Ponzi schemes haunting them in the room right now. Cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme, said T. Ravi Sankar, deputy governor of India's central bank in 2022. Cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme, said George Stolfi, professor of computer science at the University of Campinas in 2021. Cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme, said Dave Portnoy, occupier of physical space at Barstool Sports in 2020. It's not. The statement doesn't even make sense. But let's throw them a bone. It can be used in Ponzi schemes. It can and is used in pump and dump scams. But the same is true of any money, of any exchange medium. If you want to crack down on dangerous units of exchange, we should start with the token tied to more criminal acts worldwide than any other, the American $20 bill. The problem with these repetitive, low-effort think pieces on the Ponzi scare is that they don't even pay attention to the relevant history. Bitcoin's own Bernie Madoff already happened over a decade ago. Trendon T. Shavers, aka Pirate at 40, ran the Bitcoin Security and Exchange from 2011 to 2012. He solicited investors to pitch into his fund and receive gains of over 1% a day. A day! When early investors started confirming receipt of their profits, it picked up serious traction. A year later, it collapsed, and hundreds of thousands of bitcoins disappeared. Mainstream press gobbled it up at the time, and even now occasional self-congratulatory retrospectives boast about the $20 billion bitcoin Ponzi that was foiled. But, yet again, the story ignores some harsh realities. First off, $20 billion is a clickbait number that Yahoo Finance shamelessly dropped this past January. 700,000 Bitcoin at 2022 rates may well be 20 billion, but in 2012, it was barely 10 million. By modern standards, much less post-Madoff standards, that is a very modest sum of money, and there's a reason it only ran into the upper seven digits and failed within a year. If you return to the earliest Bitcoin Talk forum posts on the subject, you can see that even from the start, numerous onlookers thought it sounded like a literal Ponzi scheme. Looks like Ponzi, said some. Seems like a classic, impossible, high-yield investment program. Shavers was no Bernie, beloved by the community and floating on his public reputation. He was just a guy selling something too good to be true, and it turned out several people saw the warning signs, without any difficulty. Ultimately, it wasn't even caught or foiled. It simply never got enough momentum to keep itself from collapsing. Shavers' failure to keep up with withdrawals caught enough attention that the SEC moved in on him. The post-Madoff Securities and Exchange Commission was reinvigorated and had a lot to prove, 
and moreover, they knew the case stood to set precedent. They were particularly blunt in their press release on Shaver's sentencing. Quote, BTCST was a sham and a Ponzi scheme. Shavers preyed on investors in an online forum by claiming his investments carried no risk and huge profits for them, while his true intentions were rooted in nothing more than personal greed. They were also eager to point out that, despite processing a staggering 700,000 Bitcoin and moving it through various exchange accounts, it was ultimately the same low-tech social engineering scam that Ponzi's have always been. Ponzi scheme operators often claim to have ties to a new and emerging technology as a lure to potential victims, said the SEC Director of Investor Education and Advocacy. Investors should understand that regardless of the type of investment, a promise of high returns with literal no risk is a classic warning sign of fraud. Being able to re-watch the growth and failure of a Ponzi scheme in real time illustrates the community dynamics beneath these disasters. The fact is, many people rejected it outright based on those signs, but plenty who saw the warnings went ahead anyways. A few wanted to just see what would happen and didn't mind the risk. Some figured they'd be pulling their money out long before anything went wrong. Many, many more saw the enthusiastic first people getting their interest payouts and took that as the green light to go ahead. The collapse of Bitcoin Savings and Trust was never an unforeseen event, much less an unpredictable one. It was never going to be a surprise twist. Too many people saw the risks, and many of those people actively chose to ignore them, hungry for easy money and hoping to be wrong. It was the same kind of investment scam we've seen for a hundred years, and the trappings of cryptocurrency didn't make it particularly sinister or unique. It was just more of the same. There are so few new disasters left in the modern world. Each shuttle disaster was telegraphed by their own engineers. The most tragic building fires are almost always the result of ignoring centuries-old safety practices. All of the worst financial crises have only erupted after years of so-called professionals choosing to kick the can down the road a little longer. They don't deserve to act surprised. If you have best practices, you have an obligation to learn why. If you know why, you have an obligation to confront them when alarms are raised. Too many red flags are ignored with the future of a community or a technology at stake. Too many willfully terrible decisions are made with other people's money, even their lives at stake. If you truly believe in a business, a technology, or simply in the future of a project, you need to keep your head out of the sand and deal with your check engine light whenever it comes on. Thanks for listening. As always, all of my job titles come with the word armchair. If you're an expert and you're hearing me get it wrong, I'd like to know about it.